Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Maybe you kept your place in the 24th chapter of Luke, and today we're going to begin a study of what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Mark, the 13th chapter, and Luke, the 21st chapter. In its most complete form, it's found here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those blessings which comprise what we call the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, were delivered to the disciples of Christ, probably more than the apostle group, but people who really had thrown in their lot with the Lord. Aren't those great promises and blessings? God blesses us if we follow Him. Where I come from, the idea of blessing someone was used at times a little differently than blessing in the sense that Jesus uses it for us who are his followers. I remember, I don't know when I remembered it first, but I heard someone say, he sure did bless us out. And that was not a hug or a pat on the back. It was like, he let us have it. Well, Jesus typically was on the mild side in the way he related to people, but there was one group of people that he really blessed out royally. And that blessing out is found in the 23rd chapter of Matthew. You probably know what that group would be called. They were scribes and Pharisees. These were the people who had spent their entire lives dedicated to studying the Torah, the law of God. But they had substituted the traditions of people over the word of God. They were self-righteous. Jesus says, woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Just as surely as Jesus gives blessing to those who are following him in the eight beatitudes that we just considered, he also gave eight blessing outs of that group who were, by his description, hypocrites. The word Hypocrites comes from the word in the New Testament language, which describes a person who wears a mask. It was used, first of all, in the theaters of Greece and then the Roman theaters, where characters didn't have costumes per se, but they had a mask. And sometimes a character would change people in real life, and sometimes an actor had more than one role to play, sometimes two or three. But they would change masks. 
actors are like that in that profession. It's part of the profession. But it took on a negative tone. Jesus says also in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be seen of them. They already have their reward here on earth. So the warning to us is don't be a hypocrite. I don't remember when or where I heard the story sometime in the last 45 or 50 years, but I heard the story about an act in a traveling circus. It was the most famous and enjoyed of all the acts. It had to do with a horse and its trainer. And it would be the last act, everything built to the culmination of this act. And the trainer would lead this beautiful horse into the center ring. And then he would tell the crowd what he was going to do. He said, I'm a spiritual man and so is this horse. I'm going to ask this horse several questions, all having to do with some form of mathematics. And then the horse will respond correctly. They waited. And the first question was, how many days was Jonah in the belly of the big fish? And so on cue, the horse pawed out one, two, three. The next question was, how many apostles did Jesus have? And then same thing, 12, 12. Then the stakes went a little higher. It says, how many days was Moses on the mountain Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments? Well, very patiently, and I might add accurately, 40 were pawed out. And then some wise guy from the audience said, how many hypocrites are there in the church? And this horse went into a frenzy and died of apoplexy right there because he couldn't, couldn't get all the ones. Well, the reality is hypocrisy is no laughing matter. We know that. But if we're all honest, we all have a little hypocrite in us every once in a while because we, even though renewed, we tend to have some blind spots or we may not have a blind spot. We just might have a tendency to give in to our own selfishness and behave hypocritically. Well, Jesus didn't mince words with these hypocrites and that serves as the backdrop of where we're going to begin really in the 37th verse of the 23rd chapter. You can sense the heaviness of heart in Jesus. When he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, whenever Jesus said a name twice in succession, it was showing he loved that person, or in this case, the city of David. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. It's a beautiful picture of a mother chicken protecting her babies. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What house might that be? Well, Jesus had just been in the temple area. We know there were two times that Jesus cleansed the temple. 
One was early. It was almost at the beginning of his public ministry. John records it, and it records the reaction of the people in chapter 2 of John. And they got all over Jesus, and Jesus said this to him. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will lift it up. They thought he was talking about the physical temple, but he was not talking about that because John, as he writes about it, tells about he was speaking about his own body. He was talking about that he was going to die and he was going to be raised after the third day. Jesus had some very fond memories and not so fond memories of the temple. We don't know when Jesus would have been conscious of who he was when he went to the temple First, we know when he was eight days old, according to the law of Moses, his father Joseph, his mother Mary, did their due diligence. They took him to the temple in Jerusalem. They were in nearby Bethlehem, remember, to the temple, and he was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. I doubt if Jesus could really remember that as a human being. Maybe he had a a definitely definite view of that from eternity when he went to be with the Lord in heaven. But nevertheless, that happened. That was a high watermark in the parents' lives. And then when Jesus was 12, we know his parents took him, as was their custom, to go for Passover every year to Jerusalem. He was 12 years old, the time when a boy would transition from being a boy and hang out with his mother and the women and other children to becoming a man and start hanging out with his father. And there was some confusion of communication probably between Mary and Joseph. Mary thought Joseph was watching him and Joseph thought Mary was watching them and they were with a bunch of people from their hometown of Nazareth and a lot of family members and they had gotten away, a long way away it shows that they needed to go to a marriage counseling class because they didn't communicate, really. But, but nevertheless, they'd gotten a long way away. And then they said, where's Jesus? I don't know. I thought you had No, I, I thought you had it. And so they turned and went back. And it would be kind of nice to eavesdrop on their conversation on the way, wouldn't it? And they looked. They were frantic. They were concerned. Any parent would be, but they knew who this child really was. When they finally found him, you remember he was in the temple. What was he doing? He was sitting with all the elders and he was listening to them, but he was chiming in to the point there's strong suggestion in Luke chapter 2 that they were listening to him already as a 12-year-old. He remembered that undoubtedly. But in this case, he was having heartburn about the temple. The second time he went to cleanse the temple had just occurred a couple of days before what we're reading here. Mark is the only one who talks about it in 11 Mark verse 16. And here Jesus says in verse 38 of chapter 23 of Matthew, this house is desolate. What was he getting at? It's the same word that's used to describe the Antichrist in verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, the desolate desolation are derivatives of the same word in the New Testament. But what he was saying in Mark eleven sixteen, 16, it says that he would not let 
the priest come through the temple. They were probably as priests sacrificing animals, taking the blood, and they were maybe taking a shortcut through an area that Jesus said, no, you can't do that. Jesus showed his authority even in that situation. And by this time, when Jesus makes this comment, your house is being left to you desolate, desolate, what he's saying is, this house is no longer relevant. Because in Matthew 12, 6, you may remember the story when Jesus' apostles were hungry on the Sabbath and they had run out of food. There was no one to offer them food. Do you remember that? And the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus' nemeses, they came and they corrected him. They challenged him. You're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus gave a biblical instance or two, the most notable of which was when David and his band of men were hungry, they were able to partake of the showbread, which means the bread of the presence in what would have been the place of holiness. The Lord let them do that. The high priest agreed to that. And that didn't matter to them because they were about the law instead of about the freedom we have in Christ is what that says. Well, this is what Jesus said after he had had this short interchange in Matthew 12 with those scribes and Pharisees. It seems like every time he turned around, they were spying on him or trying to catch him in some kind of error to get him crucified. But then he said, there is something greater than the temple here. What was he talking about? He's talking about himself, wasn't he? There's something greater than the temple here. I'm here and I am God, holy God, holy man. And you know, wherever Jesus is, wherever two or three have gathered together in his name, he's there. And look at verse one of chapter 24. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now that seems like a sort of an awkward moment. Jesus, the scripture says, the translation here is good in the New American Standard, says he was going away. And that picture that is painted by those words that Matthew used was that he was going away and he was not looking back. He had finalized his relationship with anything associated with the temple. And his disciples, they knew that he was disturbed. They had seen the demonstration of his righteous anger in clearing the temple of the debris of filthiness as far as spiritual things were concerned. And they were just wanting to say something. Do you ever do that in awkward moments when it's silent? I have a habit of doing that. Feeling like I got to fill up the silence with something, even if it's nonsense. They point out the temple buildings to him. They were admirers of the temple and for good reason. It was considered the eighth wonder of the world at the time. It was something that the descendants of Abraham were incredibly grateful for. Herod the Great had spent 46 years embellishing upon it. It was a beautiful building. Here's the point for us today. 
I thank God for this building. It was already erected when I got here almost 28 years ago. It's hard to believe. And it's held up well, hasn't it? Well constructed. Someone had the thought that maybe we ought to have a better, bigger building and the Lord led the church to do it. Thank God for that. But we must always remember that the building is not the church. The building is made up of people who know Jesus Christ. There's some churches in El Paso that have very humble settings to worship. But believe you me, they're worshiping today because they're focusing on the one who is the head of the church. That would be Jesus, right? And the presence of the Lord is independent of the environment. We should make good on keeping things clean. And we have a great staff led by Ruben Madrano to keep this facility nice. They work so hard and they're always looking for things to repair that need repairing, make it as comfortable as it possibly can be for us. But look, the church is the people and it's the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. They were worried about architecture. When I went to my only trip to Europe, it's hard to believe it's been over 15 years ago. We had great host family, former members of our church who are, are Dutch. And we were their, friend, their company for those days. They took us all over Holland and we also found our way into parts of Germany and France. And invariably we would go to places that had these beautiful cathedrals. Well, you know, after about a day or two of that, I said to Sally, I said, Sally, I'm not going to another church I have to pay to get into. And then I thought, well, maybe we pay to get into church too, just in a different way, you know. But there, were no, there was no one coming there. It was just a building. This church that we call Coronado Baptist Church is not the building. And we can elevate other things in our traditions that we nurse and serve and make idols out of our traditions and things that really have nothing to do with what the Bible has to say. So we can learn from this. Look at what Jesus said in answer to their pointing out all the beauty of the building. He answered and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, and he was referring, I believe, to what he'd been talking about to the scribes and Pharisees and the emptiness, shallowness of their faith. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. How did he know that? Well, he was God become man. We know that. He was a prophet. In the book of Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, listen to what the Bible says as to how one would know who a prophet who is real would be. 1818 of Deuteronomy says this, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, talking to Moses, someone like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which 
He shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks word presumptuously, a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Wow. That would be enough warning to keep us, I hope, from prophesying out of our own heads instead of listening to the Lord and being given a word of prophecy. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has spoken or not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Jesus made a prophecy. What does he say? There's coming a day when there won't be one of these stones, which are the, what the temple is comprised of, that will be upon another. Did this happen? It did. And the information I'm going to share with you is not information that's found in your Bible. It's information that was not even written by a believer in Christ. It was written by a man named Josephus, who was a descendant of Abraham, a Jew. He was attached to the imperial army, which was led by Titus Flavius. And Titus Flavius had been given the responsibility by Caesar to go and take over Jerusalem. He took the army. It took months, even into years, for the mission to be accomplished. And as this army made its way to Jerusalem, warning came to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, according to Josephus. But there was so much infighting in the city. There were three different, if you will, parties, like a political groups, or they were really religious groups, and they were at odds with each other, and they just went to sleep at the wheel as this juggernaut came forward. Now, it was the custom of the Roman army to offer an olive branch to a nation that they were going to take over. In the case of Titus, that's what he conveyed to the leaders of Jerusalem and Israel in effect, but they didn't take it. And they, being a stubborn people and a people who were not going to give up the city of David to a bunch of pagans, they decided they would hunker down and see what happened. Well, what happened was those months turned into years. People were starving to get to death because of the cut off of the supply chain for food. Women were even eating their children, believe it or not. Cannibalism was taking place. This is what Josephus means. But then the time came when the last push of the Roman army came forward and Titus Flavius told his leaders and his men in no uncertain terms that when you go in, I don't want you to do mass destruction of people or property and especially the temple. And this is what they did. They did exactly the opposite because they were at war 
And war does things. Many of you have been in war. It has a way of warping your sense of presence of mind to make decisions that you know you would make under normal circumstances. And what happened, these men went in and they destroyed the temple. They tore it apart. They set fire to it. And there were many gold and silver items in that building, beautiful, ornate, very precious items, monetarily, but more spiritually, religiously. And the heat was so hot that the gold in liquid form and the silver in liquid form began to pour into the crevices between the stones and down into the rock and the pavement. And what Josephus talks about is how after the spire had subsided, these soldiers would be in there and they would take an object and chip all that out because it was valuable. That's incredible, isn't it? And we see that this was something that happened in 70 A.D. It happened. And it was verification that Jesus is who he is. He is a prophet, but more than a prophet. He's a king, he's a priest, he's all those things because he's God become man. So what we can draw from that is we're going to be working our way through this chapter for a few weeks is we can believe what it says. The same one who predicted the destruction of the temple and it was fulfilled and recorded by a non-follower of Christ, that is what we can trust Christ for in the whole Bible. But when we're talking about what is commonly called the second coming of Christ, we can believe what it says. It's true. That's encouraging to you, I hope. Look at the last verse we're going to look at today, verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Let's stop right there. It was customary for a rabbi, and Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher. When the rabbi would teach, the rabbi wouldn't stand up like I do. The rabbi would sit down. And the scripture says, when that happened, what took place? The disciples came to him privately. What had taken place in the temple that day when Jesus was blessing out the scribes and the Pharisees was done publicly. And we see this often in the ministry of Jesus, how he'll teach publicly and then he'll come aside and his disciples, his apostles are there and they say, Lord, what did you mean? Or sometimes he will just volunteer the information. He wants them to understand and he clarifies for them. And they were coming and they're wanting to get a little intel. We don't know if their motives were pure or not, maybe not altogether, but they want to know what's coming up. He says, and they say in verse three in the middle of it, tell us when will these things be? In other words, when is it going to happen that the temple will be just a heap of rubble? And what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age. Well, some of these men may have lived that long. I don't know. Historians tell us that all but one died a martyr's death. We know Judas hanged himself, but the other 11, the 10 of them died a martyr's death. John 
The apostle was the only one who did not. He died as an exile, however, on the Isle of Patmos. He was probably the eldest of all, maybe the youngest to begin with. But some of them may not have seen what Jesus predicted. But that would be something that they were still interested in at this point. What will be the sign of your coming? Now, let me stop here. This requires a little bit of information and instruction and explanation would be the better word. The word coming is used only by Matthew among the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew's the only one who uses this word. Now, remember, he's reporting what he heard Jesus say. And before I forget it, let me make this very plain if I can. We go to the Gospels first. The epistles are God's Word too, so I'm not casting aspersions or trying to raise doubt. But wouldn't you want to go to the one who said it first and see what he says? Because undoubtedly, that is something that the apostles received. In the case of Paul, it's been suggested that Jesus came to him when he was alone three years in the Sinai Peninsula and taught him, made up for the three years that he missed if he had been a member of the regular group, the initial group. But suffice it to say that what Jesus says here is important. Everything he says anywhere, anything the Bible says is significant beyond our comprehension really. But he says, what will be the sign of your coming? And the word coming is the word Parousia is the way it sounds. It doesn't mean anything to you, and I'm not trying to impress you. Just say that this word is used, as I mentioned, only by Matthew and only four times by Matthew. And they're all used in this sermon, if you will, on signs that will let us know that the end is near, is here, in effect. And the word was used to describe in Greek culture a Greek sovereign or king, royal person or great warrior coming to a city that has been conquered and his first entrance into the city is one that is met with much fanfare. Now, not everybody was happy that their city was being taken over, but they were just being wise, weren't they? Because this man was in charge and the man stayed there in most cases, made that his place of dwelling. And this word basically means presence, is the bottom line meaning of it. And for us to think about the coming of Jesus, it's his presence. He's going to be here in bodily form. I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit here. He's going to be here with us. He's got flesh and blood. That's what the Bible says. How we're going to relate to him Remains to be seen, but it's going to be awesome. Let me tell you, we have the opportunity now as we worship together privately, publicly. And then the question is, what will be the sign of the end of the age? The term, the end of the age, just as surely as Matthew is the only gospel writer who uses the word coming, parousia, this phrase of the end of the age, he's the only one who uses it. And the idea of the end of the age has two meanings. The first meaning is the end, as we think as people of time, it would have to do 
with the end of time and the world as we know it. But also it would carry with it the end has been achieved. That's the idea. The, the thing that has occurred has been final in its consummation of what God had in mind to begin with. God's plan has been fulfilled. There's an adage, I don't know whether it's used in business, it probably is, it would be used in sports, it could be used in the pursuit of any good goal, that a wise person always has the end in mind when an enterprise is undertaken. Is that right? You've got to have that end in mind. Jesus had the end in mind when he came. And he lived in this life, one of us. He paid the ultimate price so that we might know God the Father, be forgiven of our sin, and have eternal life, and live to glorify the Lord as we were created to to begin with. So we see Jesus, and He's telling them. He's going to tell them. We're going to see Next week, we're going to dig into it, hopefully get through verse 14 next week together. And we're going to see, it's going to be exciting to see. Many of you know more about this than I do. I don't claim to be an expert, but I'm digging in, trying to learn so that when we do open the Word of God, we can hear from the Lord and we can take what we learn. This is important, isn't it? Martin Luther put it this way. He said this. He said, I only have two days on my calendar. Today and that day. What was he saying? He knew that he would die or he would be caught up in the air when Christ returned. He didn't know which. Well, we know he died. He knew it's appointed a man once to die and after this comes the judgment. He wanted to be ready when his time came to meet Christ. I hope you do too. The big question is how do we get ready? Well, I touched on it when we took the Lord's Supper. But as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. We have to be born from above because we're dead spiritually. We have to cry out to God, God, save me. And He will if you're earnest about that. He wants to be your Lord, not just your Savior, but your Lord. Thank God for that too. As we finish today, let us remember that we were created in the image of God in our first birth. Secondly, the thing we need to remember is that our sin has marred, messed up the image of God. Our sin prevents us from being right with God. But the Bible says, therefore, if any person is in Christ, that person is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. 
Have you made that trans- transition in your life? You are a person, you wouldn't be here if you didn't have some interest in spiritual things, but it's possible in a group this large that there'd be more than one person probably who's still wondering and seeking. Well, the way you get from where you are from a place of uncertainty to a place of absolute certainty is to do what I've said already, give your heart to Christ. And just like that, you will become a new person inside. In my case, when I received Christ, I was still Mike Woods. Still had the basic temperament I was given when the genetic code was punched in when I was in my mother's womb. That's who I am. God made me that to be the person he wanted me to be. Then I came into Christ. I came to know Jesus. And then he accentuated those positive traits of my temperament so that I could be one who glorified him in my body and could be a servant of his, not a preacher, just to be a servant, to be part of the family of God. So do you want to find fulfillment in your life? You were created for God's glory. You cannot glorify God unless you have Jesus as your Lord. What? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? When you come to Jesus, oh, it's such a blessed deal to roll my, all myself off on the Lord. Say, Lord, I messed this up so badly. He said, well, I knew that, son, but I love you, and I made a way. Jesus is the way. He's the only way. So what we call you to do today is to give your life to Christ if you've never done that. It's a good way to begin preparing for the second coming, isn't it? Let's pray. If you don't know Jesus Christ, today is the day of your salvation. Say, Jesus I surrender to you today. I'm not holding anything back. You paid the price for my sin by dying in my place. Oh, Lord, forgive me. And I ask humbly, would you come in my life and take over? Empower me to accomplish what you have for all of us, and that is to honor the Father, glorify Him. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.